Hey everyone, thanks for listening to our latest sermon. We don't take for granted that you take time to listen, and we do our best to bring you valuable content each week. If you find this sermon particularly helpful, we would really appreciate it if you would do us a favor. If you listen on a podcast host, it would be awesome if you would take some time and leave us a rating or review. This helps our sermons be heard by more people. It really does. It is an easy thing to do, and honestly, it could result in somebody's life being changed. Also, if your life is changed as you listen to this sermon, even just a little, we would love to know about it. You can let us know by emailing us at respond at creekside.me. One more thing, Easter is coming up fast, and we would love to have you join us as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We have a bunch of great things going on surrounding our celebration of Easter, and you can learn about all of them by visiting creeksidebiblechurch.org slash Easter. It's weird because being a pastor allows me to rationalize a bunch of things that I would not otherwise be able to rationalize. Like I could be driving down the road and see a car on fire and a guy inside and think, I should probably help that person. And then go, yeah, but I'm a pastor and I need to preach a sermon this Sunday. And it sounds more holy than you if you're like, I need to go make money, right? Like, well, I I have to prepare a church service. I have... To I have a, a meeting with a person who wants to talk about Jesus, you know? I mean, this sounds better than the average person, and so uh, perhaps more than, you know, anybody, I, I can rationalize things, and not just that I can, I've, I've made, not that extreme, obviously, but I've made similar rationalizations to that. Like, that person looks like they need a helping hand, but I have ministry to do. I have work that I need to get done for Jesus, and so I'm going to ignore this opportunity to serve Jesus. And I do that as a pastor, but we all have a tendency, don't do we not, to try to rationalize our behavior or lack of behavior and, and to try to justify the things that we do, whether we think they're actually good or not, as good. We try to justify ourselves as good and maybe you could just think for a second like about your life and maybe you might just ask this question what what is it right now in your life that you are rationalizing something that deep inside you know is bad you know it's wrong you know it's not good you should do something different but you try to make it seem right with a bunch of excuses Uh, what is it that you're justifying as good when it's maybe not so good and this morning we're going to look at a parable that I'm going to guess every one of you have heard before, but I'm also going to guess that 99% of us here don't actually know the real point of this parable. The parable is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think it is. I, I didn't find any research to back this up, but I think it's probably, you can maybe agree with me or disagree with me, but I think it's probably the most famous parable of Jesus. It's so famous, it's so well known that 
when somebody does something good, we just call them a good Samaritan. Something good that they don't get anything out of, we just call them a good Samaritan. This is a story that we all know, but honestly, it's a story whose main point most of us have never stopped to consider. And we're going to do that today, and it's going to ruin some of your memories of Sunday school if you've grown up in the church. And if you've heard this parable taught before, if you've explained this parable yourself, then then I'm sorry for what I'm about to do to it. But uh, there is a clear primary meaning in this parable that is, that is overlooked, and it's too important, it's too valuable to our lives to ignore it any further. And so let me set this parable up because this is where you find the, the true meaning of the parable. Jesus is actually, and you may not even know this, he's responding to a question when he tells this parable, which if you're like, I've never heard the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I'll read it in a second. But, but let me set it up because in the setup, in the situation, we actually find the real point. We find the goal of Jesus' parable, and, and it's not... Exactly what you think. And so here it is in Luke 10. I'm not going to read, but I'll just kind of tell you what happens. A teacher of the law comes up to Jesus. A lot of teachers of the law came up to Jesus. In some translations of the Bible to say a lawyer, but he was like a lawyer for religious studies, not for like civil law or anything like that. And so this religious teacher, this religious student, this expert in the law comes up to Jesus and he has the same goal as a lot of experts in the law that came up to Jesus. And the goal is to trick Jesus, to trap Jesus, to make Jesus look bad. This is like a goal of the religious leaders because Jesus didn't follow their traditions. He didn't do exactly what they thought he should do and he was a threat to their power. And so he rubbed a lot of religious leaders wrong, so wrong in fact that they were constantly looking for a reason that they could arrest him and ultimately a reason that they could kill him. And so one of these teachers of the law comes up to Jesus. He's not sincere at all in this first question. And he says, hey, how would I go about getting eternal life? Now, this is a great question. This is a question that sadly I, I don't think enough Americans are asking today. I mean, this guy asks the most important question that he could ask. And oddly, he asks it to the very perfect right person to ask it to. He asks it to the very source of eternal life. It is too bad that he's not sincere. Because I believe if he was sincere, then Jesus would have given him a much easier answer. But Jesus, knowing that he's trying to be tricked, he is going to lay his own trap, his own trick on this man. And so he asked the guy, what is written? You know the law. How do you read it? How do you understand it? I mean, you, you are a religious leader. And the question of eternal life is a very important one. So what do you think? And this teacher of the law, he gives a good answer. He sums up the entire Old Testament. And he says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart. That comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. And he says, you must love your neighbor as yourself. It comes from Leviticus 19.18. Even Jesus elsewhere, he, he, when asked what the most important commands were, he said these two things. And then he said, this sums up the entire law and the entire prophets. Everything that's been written down in the Old Testament, these 
two commands, sum them all up. So this guy just basically says what Jesus says. Like, look, to get eternal life, you perfectly love God with all your heart and you perfectly love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looks at the guy and he's like, great answer, man. Do this and you will live. Sweet. End of the story, right? I mean, that's it. I just have to perfectly love God with all my heart and perfectly love my neighbor as myself. And then I get, in the most basic sense, to live forever. And that uh, eternal life didn't have the meaning, the understanding, the theological nuances that it might have for you if you've grown up in church, if you know Christianity. For a Jewish person living in the first century, it's kind of like I get to live after this life. I don't just end. All I have to do is love God with all my heart perfectly and love my neighbor as myself perfectly. Now, this is a teacher of the law. So this teacher understands the nuances of the Old Testament, the things that God has written, all that goes into loving God and loving self. And so he, in a lot of ways, has more wisdom than, than many people today. Because, and I think he gets sincere with this next question. I think he goes from trying to trick Jesus to to something that's more sincere. He realizes, it seems, in his head, I can't do that perfectly. I, I can't love God with all my heart perfectly, and I can't love my neighbor as myself perfectly. I mean, you can just imagine this guy's thinking, well, neighbor Bob this morning was was mowing his lawn too early in the morning and I got up and yelled at him you know and and on the way here guy cut me off on his camel and 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 I flipped him the bird you know I mean I mean this I can't do this it can't happen and then he's like in the fight with my wife last night you know so I can't I can't even love my neighbor perfectly let alone love God perfectly I can't do that and so Luke 10 29 tells us this but he wanted to justify himself so he asked jesus and who is my neighbor he knows in his heart that there are things that aren't right that he has not fulfilled the command to love god with all his heart perfectly and he has not fulfilled the command to love his neighbor perfectly but he doesn't know another way. Jesus has been talking about how you could get eternal life through him, how you can come into the kingdom through him, but this guy's not a believer in Jesus. And so he thinks there is a way that I can work myself into living forever. And he thinks it's very simple. I'll just love God, love others. But he knows He knows, like many of us know, that there's things wrong. He knows that there's things that are not right, that don't align with what he's supposed to do. And so there's no hope for him, but none of us like to be hopeless. And so in his head, and I think this is so sincere, he's like, I need to justify myself. I need to rationalize this. I need to figure out a way to convince myself that I can perfectly love God and perfectly love others. And so he asks what probably was the only question he could think of. Who is my neighbor? He wanted to rationalize his own life. 
Because the biggest, most important question hung upon his ability in his own mind to justify himself. This happens all around us, not like this. But it happens all around us. You may be this person. You may be like this teacher of the law. And you can see it in the ways that our culture tries to justify things that are uh, simply unjustifiable. Like, for example, and, and you know this already, that, uh, that our culture has tried to tell us that bad, morally bad, is just based on our feelings. And so as long as you don't feel bad about something, then you are okay and you are living all right, you're going to be okay. And I, I know this isn't just, if you're not a Christian, then, then man, that's a, that's a lie that Satan wants you to believe. But, but even if you're a Christian, there's, there's the, this language that's used that's so ridiculous. Like people say, I don't feel convicted. So you're okay, you can do whatever you want because you don't feel bad? I mean, that kind of makes you a, a sociopath if you shoot somebody. I mean, wh where is the line there, right? That's just, we all know that we don't have to necessarily feel bad for something to be bad. That's, that's crystal clear to us. I've done a lot of things that I knew were bad, even when, right when I did them and I knew they were bad and I did them anyway and I didn't feel that bad. In fact, some feel good. You give a person a piece of your mind, Feels good for a second, right? But it's still bad to yell at people. We know that. It's just a way that we seek to justify our behavior. Along the same lines, people say, doesn't God just want me to be happy? It's like as long as I feel good, then what I'm doing doesn't matter. Even if somewhere in my subconscious, like this teacher of the law, I know that my life isn't what it is supposed to be. Like people redefine Christianity almost. Like we've seen this and it, it's happened through the last handful of decades. It's like if I don't want to do something that Jesus wants me to do, then I'll define Christian any way I want to define Christian. I'll just say, well, I prayed some prayer so I won't think about Jesus anymore. In the early church, Paul writes, and you can read a lot of this in the book of Romans, a book that we'll study after Easter together. A lot of it in the book of Romans where people are like, hey, I call myself a Christian. I believe that that means that God's grace is what gives me eternal life. So I'll do whatever I want because as I sin more and do more wrong, God's grace increases. Paul says their condemnation is deserved. It's like this rationalization. I don't have to be a Christian if I pretend to be a Christian. You know what I mean? I don't have to be a Jesus follower if I just call myself a Christian and think about God's grace. And it makes us feel better. Or this one, if you're not a Christian, this may like be your thing. Like, well, I'm a pretty good person. And so I'll probably get eternal life. I'll probably go to heaven because my good works outweigh my bad works. And so we, we make the scale and we look at other people. This is how we rationalize a lot of time, well, times. Well, well, they're worse. I'm not Hitler. You know, I mean, if I, if I was Hitler, maybe then hell. But I'm over here somewhere. And, and so I'm okay. And I'm not as bad as neighbor Bob. And I'm not even as bad as some people that, that, that call themselves Christians. 
And so, therefore, I'm okay. It doesn't matter that I've done a lot of stuff that I have regrets about and understand somewhere deep in my subconscious I need salvation from and forgiveness from. Uh, it's okay because I'm not as bad as the other guy. I, I do mainly good things. If you can align with any of that, then you align yourself with the teacher of the law. And it's so easy to look at these people who talk to Jesus and sound like idiots 2,000 years later, but we are those people so often when we stop to think about what their actual goal is. We've all rationalized sin. We've all tried to, and this is exactly what he's trying to do, justify ourselves, make ourselves okay, make ourselves good when we know that we're not and we don't have the ability to do that. So what we see right from the beginning, and this guy, I think, gets it. Jesus isn't saying, fulfill the law perfectly, and you'll get eternal life. Jesus is instead saying, here's the standard. You'll never live up to it. So come to me. But the guy doesn't want to come to Jesus. He just wants to justify himself. And so he asked that question, who is my neighbor? Now Jesus is going to answer the question, but before he does, instead of explaining the parable as we go, I just want to kind of get you into a first century Jewish person's mind and, and, and then hopefully we can just understand the parable by ourselves. And, uh, and so a couple of things. First, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is where this parable and by the way, if you haven't been here, a parable is not a, a true story. It's a fictional short story to, to teach a point. Um, but, but the road, this story takes place on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's like 18 miles long. It's super steep. Uh, it's still there today. And from what I've heard, I've never been to the Middle East. But from what I've heard, it's like super scary because you have the tour bus going down it and nobody feels safe going down it because you'll like fall to your death. And, uh, and, it is a road that was known for being dangerous, not just in that you might fall off of it, but in the fact that you might get robbed. And after Jesus lived, a man named Jerome tells us that the road was called the bloody way because you knew if you had to walk it that you might end up bloody. You might end up being mugged. And to use a, a more modern vernacular, you might have your stuff stolen and somebody might leave you for dead. Here's another thing you need to know. Samaritans were hated by Jewish people. I mean like, I wrote it down, H-A-T-E-D. Like they are hated by Jewish people. And it goes way back in time where certain Jewish people married into the Assyrian nation. They married Assyrian women. And the Assyrians were ruling and reigning over the Jews. They were the enemy. And then certain people got married to them. And, and as married people do, they had babies. And over time, it became, in the Jewish people's minds, this mixed race that they didn't like. I mean, it was racism. They, they were racist against this mixed Jewish race. They lived in a place called Samaria, a region called Samaria, and it was just north of Judea, and the Jewish people hated them. In fact, they saw them as less than human. It's like a Jew, and then somewhere below a Jew uh, is a Samarian. Samaritan, not a Samarian, a Samaritan. Um, and then the last thing you need to know is that 
priest and Levite both, and we'll encounter a priest and a Levite in this story, they both had the job of giving alms to the poor. That was like part of their work. It was part of their duty. They both worked in the temple. A priest, you know what that is. They, they did all the religious things for the Jewish people. And a Levite being someone who would have helped the priest in their duties. They were, they were people that helped serve in the temple. They, they, you know, made coffee for the priests. They made sure that things were in order. They made sure that the collections were made. Those types of things. And so with that in mind, let's look at this reply that Jesus gives to the question, who is my neighbor. Luke 10, 30 through 35. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. pretty simple parable right and we'll see in just a moment that the neighbor is the one at the end the one that the jewish religious leader wouldn't have liked the samaritan but it's a fascinating story because we usually have it taught and this is maybe part of it but we usually have it taught to us like this be like the samaritan When you walk around this life, you see people in need, you see people hurting, you see people struggling, be a neighbor. Be a neighbor to the person. Make sure that you interact with the person. Make sure that you're there for the person. Make sure you take care of the person. Make sure you meet the person's needs. This is used to push social reform in our country still today. People will say, like, you need to give to our organization because, look, there's hurting people. And they need help. And that's a great point. You could make all of those points from other places in the Bible. But remember now, what's the question? How do I get eternal life? How do I get eternal life? And then this man wants to justify himself. And this is the story that is told. And Jesus says, look, the neighbor is the Samaritan man. And the point of this parable, what Jesus is trying to do is to show the extravagant love that it takes to be a perfect neighbor. He's trying to show this man that this man, this religious leader, can never, can never meet in and of himself the expectation that the law has set upon him to love God with all his heart and to love his neighbor as himself. As himself. And, and here's how we kind of see that. First of all, if you would have made the Levite or the priest the good guy in the story, then you could imagine how it would have been heard, right? Well, I'm in. I'm in. I'm one of them. I'm a religious leader. All you have to do is be a religious leader and be like them and you're in. Instead, he takes, in the Jewish person's mind, the lowest of low person. So it cuts aside all of the tradition 
It cuts out all of the the thinking and the baggage about what religious even means. It takes away all of the things that the the religious leader would have thought you had to go through as far as, as Jewish traditions about hand washing and all that stuff. It cuts right through it. And he goes to the lowest of lows in their society and says, look, let me show you the type of love that's required to perfectly love your neighbor as yourself too, to be a neighbor. Now think about it. He, he goes across the street. That's what we see from this Samaritan. He takes pity. He goes across the street and he, he bandages the man. So easy just to just kind of ignore that. But that's disgusting, right? I mean, we don't like other people's blood. That, I think, is our big fear as far as if you've ever taken a CPR class or anything like that. I, I don't, I, you're not thinking, like for me, maybe just not me, but for me, it's like I'm totally willing to try to save somebody's life. I don't care if they sue me trying to save their life. I don't really want to get their blood all over me, you know? Like, am I really going mouth to mouth with a stranger? You know, I mean, those are the things that, that I'm thinking about during a CPR class. And so, just for the sake of the story, think about what Jesus is saying here. This guy, this Samaritan, this, this person that was low of lows as far as religious goes in their society, he goes across the street and he bandages up this man. And then he takes his his oil and his wine, both expensive things. Both things, by the way, that he would have needed along his journey. He does that to soothe the man and to disinfect the man's wounds. He plays doctor a little bit. And again now, he's on this pretty long hike, I mean, 18-mile road, right? And, and he probably needs some things. And yet he sacrifices of his his own possessions in order that this man might be healed. He, he, in fact, risks his very life. And we'll come back to that. But then he loads the man up on his donkey and he takes, them to an, he takes him to an inn. And what's fascinating about this is that you would think, well, his job's kind of done now. He could just walk away. But we see in this parable that not only does he take him to the end, but he stays the night with him because it tells us the next day as he's heading off. And so he takes care of this man all night, this stranger that he does not know. He takes care of him all night. Make sure that he has what he needs. And when he wakes up the next day, he gives two denarii to the innkeeper and says, hey, let him stay as long as possible. Now, they found just shortly after this, like a sign. This is so crazy. But they found a sign from an inn that would have been in that area. An inn that was in that area. Accidental pun. Um, but they found this sign. And it, it gave the cost of what it would, stay, what it would be to stay the night in, in an inn at that time. And Tutanary would have paid for about two months of stay in an inn. Two months he pays for. Imagine paying for a hotel for two months for somebody. And then not only that, but he basically hands the guy his credit card, the innkeeper. Giving anybody your credit card is a bad idea. Um, but perhaps most, an innkeeper on the side of the road. And by the way, this is not like the Rich Carlton. These inns were like people opening shacks on the side of the road to kind of take advantage of people who are about to die. Here's my credit card. Anything else this man needs, 
you charge it to me. And by the way, even in stopping, he risks his life. It's pretty widely believed that as the first century Jewish person would have read this story, they would have known that the, the priest and the Levite, they may not have stopped. There's a couple reasons people give. They may not have stopped because they wanted to remain religiously pure. But even more than that, they may not have stopped because if a man is still alive, it means the robbers might still be by and you might be killed too. And so even in stopping this man, risks his very life. And when we look at the lavish love, the wine, the oil, the money, the inn, the donkey, the blood, when we look at all of it, the point is not go and do likewise, although that's a great idea. The point is you can never do likewise. You will never be able to be this Samaritan to every person that you encounter. You will never be able to live a day, not a single, single day, where you will be able to do everything, where you will be willing even to do everything in your power, in your capabilities to meet every need of every person that you encounter. You'll never live a day like that. You probably never can't speak for everybody, but you've probably never lived one day where you did this for one person, where you said, I will give you all the money you need and I will come into your, your space in your life in a way that puts me in danger and I will, I will risk my own life for you and I will uh, do disgusting things that I don't like to do for you. I'll do whatever you need done. To meet your needs, you probably never lived a day where you did that for anybody. Where you said, I will give everything that I have to give for you. And when you read this parable, with this in mind, the point is clear. Stop rationalizing your behavior. Because you'll never line up to the standards of God. You'll never do it. Jesus asked the question, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, he doesn't say the Samaritan. He says the one who had mercy on him. He didn't even want to say the word Samaritan. Uh, you don't even want to utter that that was the good one. The idea, <laughs> this religious teacher would never have called the parable the good Samaritan. That would not have been, the, the words good Samaritan never would have come out of his mouth. He says the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And the man, we just know this, we know this now that we know the point, right? The man doesn't go, I got this. I'm going to go down to the road right now. I'm going to take some oil and some wine. I'm going to get a donkey. I'm going to stay out there all day and try to make sure that every person who's beaten up and robbed has everything they need. I got this. I'm going to go start a new organization and make sure that everybody in the earth is taken care of. He doesn't do that. He knows. He know, whether he accepts Jesus or not, we don't know from the story. Whether He says, I'm going to be your follower. We don't know. But he knows. 
I can't justify myself. I can no longer rationalize my behavior. I am in need of a Savior. I'm in need of forgiveness. I'm in need of justification that goes beyond me. I'm in need of hope that comes from an outside source. Because in and of myself, I cannot love God with all my heart and love my neighbor as myself. We already knew that. We didn't know the story of Jesus, but we're just like this religious teacher. We try to justify ourselves. We don't love anybody like we love ourselves. We love ourselves like we love ourselves. So just taking a step back, not to ruin your Sunday school version of this story, because all these things are true. Uh, a guy named Craig Blomberg, a great author, great commentary writer, uh, he, he says, and this was, this was new to me, but it's really interesting, that a parable has as many points as there are characters. And I'm not sure that he's right, but if he is, then I would say one one point of this is that ethical and or social standards will not get you eternal life. Only faith in Jesus. Two, everyone is your neighbor, even your enemies. Our neighbor is anyone we encounter. And the act of neighboring falls upon us. And then three, the Samaritan's actions are an example of what it means to love. But this is the problem. When we encounter the story of the Good Samaritan, we see what it means to love. And we can't do it. We just can't do it. Bible.org says, Love does not ask, How far do I have to go? Love asks, What can I do? And we know that that just isn't going to happen. You don't wake up every day going, What can I do to love others? You wake up going, What do I need to get done? Tim Keller says, we instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we are like. Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor. And you must love your neighbor. And we know there's people we don't like, right? There are people that we don't like. And we go, well, if I saw my sister, or my brother laying on the side of the road, I'd take care of them or my good friend or my parents. But there are people, even if you were being honest, you might say there are people that if you were walking down a road and you saw them bleeding on the side of the road, you would, you would not stop. You would think they deserved that. That's the point. You cannot justify yourself. You should not rationalize your behavior. Jesus declares elsewhere in Scripture that it's the job of Christians to meet needs. There's this great story that Jesus tells. He says, look, in the end, when I return, when I come back to earth, I will separate people, one, uh, one group on one side of me, one on the other. And on one side, I will put Christians. On the other side, I will put those who did not choose to follow me. And then he'll say to the ones that aren't Christians, 
Why don't you feed and clothe and take care of me and give me shelter and, uh, and visit me when I was in prison and all these things? And they'll say, when did we see you? And he said, when you didn't do it for the people of the world, you didn't do it for me. And so Jesus makes clear that we are to meet the needs of people. In fact, we should try to meet the needs of people perfectly, every person that we encounter. But we all know that we cannot do it. Justification and rationalization was not going to make this man a neighbor. But here's what can. Here's the other cool part of this story. Is that in some ways it illustrates exactly what Jesus did for us. You see, none of us can neighbor perfectly, but all of us can come to the one who did neighbor us perfectly. Jesus looked down at the road of earth. He saw that we had been beat up, bloodied, battered by sin, by all of the things that we have done wrong. And he saw that in the midst of our hurt and pain, we were hopeless. We could not break the chain of sins. We could not break the curse of the world. We had no hope for eternal life. And he had, and we forget this, every right to sit up in heaven and go, sorry. He had every right to walk on the other side of the street and to say, too bad for you. I'm not going to do something that cost me everything. But he came, this is what we believe as Christians, he came out of heaven into earth. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfectly sinless life where he in fact did love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and he loved his neighbor as himself. In fact, I was reminded of a story when I was studying for this. A few stories in the Bible where people would call to Jesus or they'd come to Jesus and Jesus was a busy, busy man and had every right and every excuse to say, I don't have time for that guy or I don't have time for those people when he didn't. One, little kids are being brought to Jesus because the parents want the little kids to be prayed for by Jesus and the disciples are like, he doesn't have time for your kids. I mean, he's preaching to thousands. He doesn't have time for you and Jesus says, do not hinder the little children from coming to me. And another time there's a guy that, that's blind and he's, Jesus is walking with, with hundreds and thousands of people following him because they want to see what he's going to do next. And this guy is cry, crying out, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. And the people are like, hey, shut it. You know what I mean? This Jesus got things going on. Jesus stops and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And he heals the man. And then there's another woman who's been bleeding for years. And Jesus is in this crowd and, and the crowds are so tight that people are bumping into him from everywhere and she just wants to be healed and she touches his garment and she's healed and Jesus turns around and has an interaction with her. He stopped for every person because only he could be the perfect neighbor. And then at the end of that life, despite having loved God perfectly and loved loving his neighbors as himself, even beyond himself, he was condemned to die on a cross and he died on that cross where all of our sin, every time where we weren't a neighbor to people, even the times where we were an enemy to people and we hurt people and we were the robbers in the story, he died for all of that. 
And three days later, he got out of the grave. And the point of this story is you could never neighbor perfectly. But there has been a perfect neighbor, and his name is Jesus, and you need to give your life to him because it's the only way that you can have eternal life. And the trick of the story is that when we give ourselves to Jesus, we actually become better neighbors to those around us. So my encouragement to you this morning is don't rationalize. Even if you're a Christian and you have a sin in your life, don't rationalize it. Don't try to justify yourself. Come to Jesus. Live. And if you're not a Christian, this parable is told for you. It really is. It's told for you. If you're a person who's rejected Jesus, and especially if you're a person who's rejected Jesus because you're pretty good, and you probably are. I'm not disagreeing with that. You're probably a, a fine person and all that. Or you're a person who's rationalized sin by saying, what is sin, you know? I mean, really, what is that? It's, I don't feel bad about the things that I do. Or, or you're a person who's tried to, uh, to twist theology. I mean, if that's you, man alive. You're never going to have eternal life apart from Jesus. And let this parable stand as the truth the truth that you need, the perfect neighbor, you need Jesus. Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray that we'd be great neighbors, Lord. Um, I pray that we would be people who follow in your footsteps, but even more, God, I, I ask that we would be people who would not rationalize and we would not seek to justify ourselves because we can't justify ourselves, God. We'll, we just can't do it. And your parable perfectly illustrates that. Lord, we'll never be good enough to come into your kingdom. We'll never be good enough to obtain eternal life on our own. And so I pray, God, for those in front of me, for those listening online, God, I just ask that they would stop trying to justify themselves and they would find their justification in you. Lord, without, as Matt said a few weeks ago, without the bad news, there's no good news. And Lord, this story, while it's so beautiful and such a great reminder of how we should treat people, is really a reminder of the bad news, that we are imperfect, fallen people that don't love others the way that we should and definitely don't love you like we ought to. And Lord, I pray that we would not think of that and then sit in our guilt, but I pray we would think of that and come to you. Lord, I wonder as I pray what happened to that teacher of the law 2,000 years ago. And I, great question. I, uh, I just wonder, Lord, because I see only two results, Lord. Like, one, he walked away feeling horrible guilt. Or two, he fell down on his knees and accepted you as his savior and had all of his guilt removed. I pray, God, for these people that they would choose to fall down on their knees and give their lives to you so that their guilt could be removed. I pray these things in your name. Amen.